How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Hi, it's David Locke, host of Locked on NBA. SI.com, behind Ben Golliver and Rob Mahoney, have done a wonderful thing and put together a top 100 list of the NBA players. Today's guest is Ben Golliver, and he breaks down their decisions, their analysis, in a very interesting NBA debate conversation. So I hope you enjoy it very much. Upcoming will be our preview shows with the Locked On podcast hosts as we take you toward the tip-off of the NBA season and next week an Eastern Conference uh, big-picture breakdown as well. So that's what's coming up on Locked On NBA. And have you subscribed yet to your Locked On podcast? Every NBA team has a daily podcast, and we'd like you to subscribe. Thank you very much for doing so. You can grab this podcast both on iTunes or your Google uh, apps as well as your Google Home or on Alexa. So make sure you catch them in any of that ways. Today's show is brought to you by Warby Parker. Do you know Warby Parker? It's a revolutionary eye company. Boutique quality eyewear at revolutionary price points. Little cool company. So many different things about them that are great. I own three different pairs. My wife owns three pairs. My kids each own a pair. Why? Because, frankly, they're glasses that start at $95, including those with prescription lenses. They have a contemporary twist. They're really attractive. And then also the fact that a billion people worldwide lack access to glasses. So Warby Parker's doing something about it. 15% of the global population cannot effectively learn or work because they can't see. So therefore, Warby Parker partners with nonprofits like Vision Spring to ensure that every pair of glasses sold and a pair is distributed to someone in need. So they believe everyone has the right to see. So therefore, when you buy from Warby Parker, you end up giving a free pair of glasses to someone else. Now, how do you do glasses online? You go to warbyparker.com slash locked and you do the home try-on. You get five pairs of glasses. You get them for five days. You take pictures. You send them to people. You check and you see. And they also have a new iTunes app as well that makes it easy. Again, you can enter through the URL warbyparker.com slash locked and do the home try-on for you and you'll see what the different options are. You get to try them on and then you send them back and they send you your brand new pair. They're $95 to start with their prescription eyeglasses. Great prices. I have the Jennings is the one I probably wear the most. So go check it out. WarbyParker.com slash locked and you will get yourself the opportunity to do the home try on or you can do it and place your home try, and you also can go to the iTunes App Store as well. All right, let's get to the show. Thank you very much to Ben Golliver of SI.com, and this is always our tradition here on the program. If you want to take a second and send Ben a thank you at, at Ben Golliver, it'd be greatly appreciated. You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Well, Ben, thanks so much for, for joining the show, and I have to say this is kind of dear to my heart because – uh, I had an old friend who wrote for the Standard Examiner here in uh, Utah. And this was back 92, 
93, 94, 95, and we used to put together, and he really was the lead dog on it, the top 100 list, and then I copied him and did it all my years in Seattle. But he used to do this, and I thought it was such an interesting exercise of who are the top 100 players, how do you evaluate them, what does it mean, and so I've always been kind of mesmerized by it. A few years ago, Larry Kahn, I know, actually started to try to figure out a standard deviation by how teams did based on the multiple, like the ESPN rank and whether it could tell you what a team was going to do, which I thought was a pretty interesting thing on team building. So I hope you enjoyed this process because I, I have bailed out of it um, probably because I um, ride planes with some of these players. Uh, but I always admire you guys that do it and think it's a great exercise. Well, I'll tell you, when I first did it, this is going back to CBS probably seven years ago. I really dreaded it, and I think it just sucked me in a little bit more and more every year. I've had the same experience with people who are sort of like fellow top 100 list survivors. Like I had a guy from uh, one organization's front office. Was, he pointed me towards like the old Rick Berry preview guides where they were giving like blurbs on every single player, and he's like, you know, while you're writing, uh, you know, 20,000 words uh, for this project that you know to accompany the list. Uh, just remember, Rick Barry was doing it 30 years ago. So there's a nice tradition to this. Um, I'm always excited. What makes it crazy, I think, is the social media aspect these last couple of years where you know, the players themselves or people close to them are responding in real time. And, you know, the arguments maybe that we had in the office over a certain play, uh, player are now playing out with that player, sometimes an all-star, uh, on the Internet like an hour later. And that has been a really, you know, trippy experience for us. I think what's also very interesting, and I do think it's a weakness, frankly, of our media a little bit. There's a huge group think in our media. So there used to be – I remember I did one list, which I published, where I purposely put Shane Battier ahead of Carmelo Anthony. And, the co- and, and, and it was like a crazy concept then. Uh, this was before, I think, the whole Sports Illustrated Michael Lewis, Shane Battier article out. It was like, wait a second, this guy's helping them win more than Carmelo helps them win, and all I care about is wins – other than a few that we'll get into here, I feel like that's gone away a little bit. That there's not as much of a surprise element to how you're, where you might place a guy as the information's become more readily available. And maybe to criticize all of us, that there's a level of groupthink of what we think is good basketball now. Well, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, I think first, speaking on behalf of our list, we feel like we're doing a better job being consistent with our criteria than we have in, in past years just by the sheer force of doing it for five years in a row. So we think that our list is a little bit more consistent and better. In terms of the general basketball community, I think people have gotten a lot smarter, and I think advanced stats have really seeped into what we would consider the, the widespread intelligentsia now. So when you're talking about players like a Chris Middleton, instead of a couple of years ago where people are saying who, uh, you're having a pretty loud group, sort of that you know, you're like yourself with Shane Battier, who are saying, no, no, we should really talk about this guy and explain why he's better than some of the, you know, the one-dimensional scorers that are you know playing his position. So uh, I think the IQ across the board from our readership has gone up. I mean, certainly there's still some pretty clear philosophical differences in terms of you know, do you prioritize a, a guy like Carmelo uh, who could you know really be a number one option for you, uh, especially at the, at the time when you were writing about him, or do you prioritize the all-around two-way guys who are maybe more complementary offensive players? I think that's the kind of philosophical difference we run into time and again when we do this list. Um, but I think that we're at the point where that has now been argued to death a little bit over these last, say, three, four, five years. And so the battle lines have been drawn, and uh, it's not quite you know, new intellectual territory. 
The best part about this, by the way, and I want to, I really, and I'm actually using it as I go prep every team right now. I got to thank you and, and Rob, uh, because the little write-ups on every player are terrific. So it's actually become a staple on all of my preseason prep on all of the teams is, is, you know, when I was doing OKC, I then, was r- rolled over and grabbed, uh, you know, you're right up on Westbrook, you're right up on George, you're right up on Adams, uh, to make, to get those little tidbits. So the write ups, you know, you can go to S, you can search SI top 100 NBA players and you'll get the list of 100. I, I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't take the time with two great basketball minds like Ben and Rob Mahoney of reading the descriptions. All right. I, I want to, I have three, four kind of debates to have just right out of the shoot and we'll see if we lead into anything more fun um and let me just clarify like i'm probably taking it from a devil's advocate point of view but i actually think that like you know what i think you guys did a pretty incredible job and i've done it before so i know it's brutal but i just want to have some fun with kind of the debates that we have so one of the things i really thought was interesting is you guys are trying to do it regardless of team and regardless, you know, without kind of an impact of who your teammates are. And so it leads to two discussions. One is Draymond. So Draymond, unquestionably to me, on the Golden State Warriors, is the 10th best player in the NBA. Let's say he had signed a max deal and was now in Detroit as the lead guy in Detroit. Wouldn't he? Isn't he suddenly like the 20th? I mean, I love Draymond. I got what Draymond is. Isn't he like the 25th or like 30th or maybe? Like, I don't know. Like, what do you think he is if he's not surrounded by all these guys that cover any of his weaknesses? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And what we kept coming back to when we were discussing Draymond is not only does he have all these other guys covering his weaknesses, but the fact is he covers a lot of other guys' weaknesses for them too. And we think that that would be pretty transferable. We love the vacuum test. It's not necessarily the only thing that we look at as much as we want it to be. Uh, but when we were imagining Draymond on a random team, uh, we were feeling very confident in him being one of the top three most impactful defensive players. And when you drop those guys onto a collection of ra- uh, random talent, uh, I think actually Rudy Obert is an interesting example. We were very confident in his ability to transfer his uh, defensive impact to any team uh, around the league. Uh, especially when you're a big and when you're able to play multiple positions like Draymond can, we felt like that's going to fit with almost anybody, whether it's Detroit, Orlando, or whoever. So we thought, okay, he's going to give you uh, a top 10 defense probably at worst. If he's healthy, he's playing the normal minutes he plays, uh, and he's kind of the captain back there. We love his leadership intangibles. Uh, you know, that was a big question we had actually entering the season was, did Draymond kind of go off the rails personality-wise? Was he going to be able to pull it back together and get back to being that positive motor that he was for Golden State. We thought he did that. And then offensively, even though his three-pointer is shaky, some years it's there, some years it's not, he gives you the stretch. And what we love the most about Jamon's offensive game is just the the role man playmaking, you know, the, the pop playmaking, where if he goes up and sets a screen, he's not just a dummy setting that screen. He's able to take that pass, read a defense, find the open man, collapse it uh, with a dribble or two going towards the basket. He's not the world's most electric finisher, uh, but we see him really as a two-way guy. I mean, a guy who's going to give you, like I said, an elite defense, plus be a very helpful offensive piece who's going to make his teammates better. I think some of the things that he does uh, are still in that unquantifiable category. Uh, but to us, we always do this test of, like, who would you rather have, Draymond or Player X? And time and again, Draymond just sort of wins that comparison for us. Uh, you know, in that you know, that 10 to 20 
grouping. One example positionally would be a guy like Carl Anthony Towns. Like we know Carl Anthony Towns is going to be a stud offensive player. Uh, we expect him to take a huge leap in year three. Do you trust him defensively uh, to be able to be that backline guy? Do you have to cover uh, him? You know, do you have to have a center who can sort of uh, make up for some of his limitations there? When we're doing sort of that Draymond at number 10 versus Towns at number 14 comparisons, we kept coming back to the idea that we just uh, trust Draymond uh, more at this point of their respective careers. And remember, this is a one-year exercise. So we're not saying we'd take Draymond for the next five seasons over Towns for the next five seasons. I think we'd pretty clearly take Towns on, on uh, a longer-term view. Uh, it was just a trust factor right now. Draymond's in his prime. We'll take him. Okay, the general rule in all of media is to make sure you play the hits, right? You know, if we were really – so let me play the hits here for a few minutes, and then I want to get into a few more of the debates. The top ten is – and without – you know, you guys can go read about it. Uh, LeBron, Durant, Curry, Leonard, Harden, Westbrook, Chris Paul, Anthony Davis, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Draymond were the ten. How close were you to Durant as one? Uh, well, it's funny because we weren't close at all initially through the entire process. We spent about a month on this. There's like three or four different steps that we go through. We were never that tempted to do it. And then as I was writing the Durant blurb, and then as I started writing the LeBron blurb, which obviously are the very last two things I write, I kind of had a panic attack moment where I was like, oh, my God, uh, we actually might need to just flip this and, and be a little bit more forward looking than we've been. Uh, but I think the most likely scenario is that Durant passes LeBron on next year's list. I think that's a pretty natural timeline. Uh, he's pretty much checked all the boxes. I think he needs a little bit of slippage from LeBron. It's really hard to knock LeBron out of the number one spot when he averages a 33 point triple double in the finals. Uh, and if you do that old, you know, comparison of like, if you switched LeBron and Katie during the finals, uh, I mean, obviously LeBron on the Warriors, I mean that's going to be a sweep series, I think. So, uh, we're still okay with LeBron at one, but it's getting tighter than it's ever been. And I expect Katie probably on next year's list, just when you look at the age curve, uh, we'll probably move past him. Because I thought Durant, before he got hurt, was the MVP. I did too. I, I've never spoken to someone else who's, who's thought that. So maybe we do have a little bit of group thing going on here. But I'm really big on best player on best team as the criteria for MVP. Not every single season. I'm not totally – locked into that, but I thought he fit that criteria. His efficiency is off the charts. His defense was super improved last year. And the reason why we put him over player like Steph, and that's a really popular debate too, like two versus three, was uh, the transferability of his defensive versatility. So in other words, if you're putting him on a random team like Detroit, you mentioned earlier, whoever else, not only can Katie give you great defensive minutes at the three or the four, uh, because he can kind of slide between those two pretty seamlessly. But now in certain lineups, you know, KD can go out there and play the five. He's not the world's, you know, best rim protector, but that's really putting a lot of pressure on defenses to, uh, you know, keep up matchup wise when they go to that look. And they didn't have to do that a ton, but they certainly could if they wanted to. Uh, so his improvement defensively, uh, his multi-positional ability, and then just the natural scoring gifts that he's had basically since he came into the league, uh, they just get better and better. And, uh, you know, our thought was with KD, you'd have a better chance at, you know, sort of a top 10 offense and a top 10 defense if you were building your team around him than if you were trying to build around somebody like Steph, where uh, you're certainly going to have a top five offense no matter where you put Steph Curry. Uh, but defensively, there's going to be some questions. He's going to be much more reliant upon his teammates on that side of the ball. So playing the hits again, pretty fascinating is four, five, six. Kawhi Leonard at four, Harden at five, and Westbrook the MVP at six. How. What was the debate inside there? Well, it, it was 
very interesting because we actually kind of cut Kawhi up into that next tier earlier than you might expect. I mean, those were the three guys who were going back and forth about MVP all season long. Uh, and then especially after Durant was injured. Uh, but for us, Kawhi was more of a debate. Should he be at three? We thought he was just separated a little bit from the other two uh, because of that old two-way player argument. Uh, you know, his offense has improved, I think, five straight seasons. I mean, basically every year he's been in the league, he's improved as a scorer, and he's gone to the point where he can carry an offense. And his defensive impact, I think, some of the advanced numbers weren't as high as him, uh, you know, on him uh, this past year. But, you know, eye test-wise and, like, what he's doing in the playoffs, I mean, there's no question he's still that guy defensively. So uh, that is what separated him from both Harden and Westbrook. The really tricky one was Harden versus Westbrook. And I think what we came down to, was this idea that while they both put up, you know, stat lines that haven't been done since the 60s, I think stylistically we believe that Harden's uh, approach to offense is more sustainable. You know, it's less uh, reliant upon pure physicality. And so we trust it a little bit more. I, I think he's less susceptible to injuries the way he plays. Uh, and then also uh, the ceiling on his offense was just so much higher. I mean, Houston didn't get nearly enough credit for having a top 10 all-time offensive efficiency last season with only one all-star in the lineup. Uh, they didn't get the credit because Golden State was even better than them, and they obviously were a lot more star-studded. Uh, but that was a truly special Rockets attack that was really designed in uh, Harden's mold. You look at Westbrook's offense, I mean, they weren't even average offensive efficiency with him leading the way. Of course, they could make some improvements uh, with their personnel, and I think they did that this summer with guys like Paul George and Patrick Patterson. It's going to make Westbrook look better. But still, it's very hard to envision Westbrook being the main guy on like a top 10 all-time uh, offense in terms of efficiency just because he's not the world's greatest finisher. He's great at getting into the paint. Uh, but he's not, you know, finishing at a very high rate, uh, kind of a streaky three-point shooter, shot selection issues, turnover issues. And, and some of those things apply to Harden, too. I mean, he takes a lot of bailout threes. I kind of sink his three-point percentage, and he has a lot of turnovers. Uh, but when you, you know, factor in basically how, how uh, monumentally efficient Houston's offense was, and then also Harden's passing. I mean, we thought vision and playmaking, finding shooters, uh, was just a cut above where Westbrook's passing is. Uh, I think that when you're looking at those like cross-court laser passes that Harden throws, there's only a few guys in the league who can really consistently hit those looks, and um, and that helps. You know, if you can just have a random, you know, spot-up three-point shooter, it doesn't have to be the world's most talented guy. Harden's going to be able to pull you know, really good minutes out of him in a way that we didn't really think that Westbrook would be able to. Uh, that's why we ended up siding with Harden over Westbrook. It's interesting debates. I, I don't know I would have put this guy anywhere else, but I just would share this point of view with you and just get your thought on it. So we ran – I've always been kind of uh, mesmerized by an idea of players' standard deviation of performance. And so we ran some work last year. One of my listeners actually did most of it, so he deserves the credit, not I, of kind of where everybody's performance – you know, what variance is there – between somebody's performance day-to-day of the top scorers in the league, LeBron's the most consistent. LeBron just gives you the same thing every single night, which is a pretty good argument of why he's number one. The widest variance of the top scorers in the league is Anthony Davis. As, as awesome as Anthony Davis is on his 40-point nights, he gives you a lot of 16s. And the, you lose every single time he gives you one of those. I don't know that I put him anywhere other than eight. Maybe I drop him a little bit, but I think I think he's a bit more flawed than we realize in his ability to perform every night. That's fascinating. I 
this is another example of groupthink, but like years ago, let's say five or six years ago, I worked on something that I called shake, which was basically trying to uh, put into like, you know, quantify a player's uh, consistency or inconsistency night to night scoring. And the year that I did it was actually that year. Do you remember when KD had like 50 games in a row where he scored like 20 plus? Mm -hmm. I'm forgetting exactly the, uh, uh, the accomplishment that he had might have been 25 plus points, but he was just like this robot in terms of his scoring. And I thought, man, if the coach, that's exactly what I would want. I wouldn't want necessarily those 45 point nights. I mean, they'd be nice to have, uh, but if they come with, you know, some of those below average nights like you're talking about, that probably means more losses than wins. Whereas if you could just pencil a guy in for his scoring, uh, it's so much easier to build around. Uh, you know, in terms of Anthony Davis, the first thing that jumped out when you mentioned his inconsistency to me is, He's very reliant upon backcourt guys setting him up and getting him into his stuff. And their personnel in New Orleans has just been atrocious. And it probably hasn't gotten enough uh, talk about how bad it's been around them. And I think when you look at even some of the injuries they've had this summer going into next season, their projected death chart is a mess. And I feel uh, kind of bad for both him and Cousins because when you talk about the vacuum test, they would probably put up even better numbers than they've had last season if they just had an average cast of teammates, they just haven't been able to enjoy that down in New Orleans. And uh, part of our thinking with placing Anthony Davis at number eight was that uh, we were very confident that Giannis was going to be the next guy because he had the ability to be sort of a lead offensive player, but also a really impactful defensive player. But we felt like Davis's track record in terms of years of high level statistical production still outweighed Giannis's amazing breakout year. And it kind of felt like if we put Giannis over Davis, maybe we're falling for the flavor of the month a little bit. And we're forgetting about a guy in Anthony Davis who not that long ago was actually number three on our list. I want to say maybe three years ago, we had him all the way up at number three. So I, I still think that the uh, long story short, I still think the best that Davis has is still yet to come. And I think if he did have a legitimate sort of like you know, NBA caliber guards and wings flanking him, uh, and in some nights they don't have that. I mean, some nights they're plugging in D leaguers. Uh, I think his consistency would improve. So the seven top seven of LeBron, Durant, Curry, Kawhi, Harden, Westbrook, and Chris Paul is pretty set. Like we kind of know that. I think Giannis is the one you point out. We all think is the next to break that of your group that follows that. So Jimmy Butler, Paul George, John Wall, Carl Anthony Towns, Gobert, Hayward, Lillard. Conley, Lowry, Clay Thompson, Kyrie Irving, Blake Griffin, Luka Donka. No, I don't know if that's uh, DeMarcus Cousins. Who do you think is most likely to interject themselves next year in one through seven? Yeah, if we're, if we're taking Giannis out of it, I'd say the most likely guy is probably Towns, uh, just because he's at that point where, like, big improvement year to year is still possible on the age curve. He's just young enough where if he continues his second half play uh, that he had last season, sort of like Giannis did, uh, you know, from two years ago, and he just comes out of the gate, putting up those monster 2010s every single night, super efficient. Uh, they're, you know, say a top six or seven offense. Uh, now that they've been up, uh, you know, upgraded over the summer with guys like Butler uh, and Teague, I mean, that could be a situation where now it's Towns versus Davis. It's just like a nonstop debate that we're always having. And that's the easiest way to crack into that top group is to sort of, you know, set your sights on guys who have been there and, uh, you know, have arguments. You know, you're more consistent, perhaps, or you're more efficient. Uh, and he could be a guy who sneaks in there. Uh, you know, some of these other guys, you know, with, with Jimmy Butler, Paul George, John Wall, it's interesting because they've really solidified themselves in that 
you know, that second tier, like that 10 to 15 tier. I mean, there wasn't really any question for us that those guys belonged there. But when you do try to forecast uh, them jumping up anymore, it's almost like somebody has to fall off. And when you look at that top seven group, I mean, with the exception of LeBron, uh, you know, it's all like 31 and under guys. You take Chris Paul out of it. I think it's all, uh, you know, 30 and under guys. I mean, these are all prime players who we don't really expect to go anywhere. So I guess big picture, uh, my, my takeaway to your question would be that we expect the top probably seven of next year's list uh, to look very similar uh, to the top seven of this year's list. And then you'd probably suspect that Anthony Davis holds around eight and Giannis at nine and Dre. I mean, there's really no reason to believe that, that frankly, that the top nine changed at that point. Um, though John Wall would be mine, by the way. I think second year, yeah, Scott great, Brooks. Great second guy, Randy Whitman is a really, really good X's and O's coach. Much better than anyone realizes. If you talk around coaches around the league, as much as Whitman got criticized all the time, you actually heard coaches around the league talk about how creative he was with some of his X and O's. But that's not who John Wall is. And Scott Brooks, I think, tapped into who John Wall is. I think John Wall's second year with Scott Brooks could be a huge story in this league this year. Well, he made a comment uh, like a week before I wrote my blurb about him, which basically said, I think he said he called himself the best two-way point guard in the league. And I like it because it was aspirational. I don't think he's there yet. I still think that's Chris Paul. But if John Wall sort of recommits defensively, uh, I think that could really take him to the next level. I mean, I think that's where the improvement comes from. He's got all the tools to be a big impact defensive player there. Uh, let's see him do it. Offensively, I think he didn't get nearly enough credit for how many points he generated by his assists last year. Uh, I mean, he, if you look at his own scoring plus the points that he was uh, creating for his teammates, and a lot of those are like drive and kick threes. I mean, exactly the kinds of shots that you want, uh, you know, setting setting up open shooters for, for clean looks. Uh, you know, he's on a level with guys like Harden uh, and Westbrook, even though he's not averaging a triple-double. I mean, he, he's got, you know, that level of offensive impact. So, uh, we need to see a little bit more consistent winning from Washington. I mean, remember they had that very slow start last year. They were starting to figure it out. Hopefully year two under the new coaching staff helps them hit the ground running uh, and a little bit of defensive improvement. And I think he's in this conversation too. The uh, I've lived this debate for the last few years um, and more so last year. So I'm curious to get your take. Butler, George Hayward. Butler's 11, George is 12, Hayward's 16. Here was my assessment of that. I want your take on it. I'll, I'll throw, mine's well-known for most of the listeners. I, I feel like Gordon's a better player for the first 46 minutes of every game than those guys. He's a better teammate. He moves the ball. He doesn't hijack possessions. He plays within the system. He works the game. He keeps his teammates going. And then it's the Sports Center highlight stuff in the final two minutes, he's just not as dramatic or, frankly, as good as Jimmy Butler, Paul George isn't great at it in those circumstances. And so I think that people fall in love with George and Butler a bit more on that. What's your what's your take on, on those three? Yeah, I mean, you can tell by the way we rank them that it's really close. I mean, we went around and around and around in circles. Uh, ultimately, I think we sided with Butler over George largely on – shot selection and, you know, willingness to – something George that it's like if it ever does kind of click, like if he does realize that he shouldn't quite be as Kobe-esque as he is, and if he really puts his head down and gets to the basket, he could be such a better player. There's still times where he kind of, you know, he tries to do a little bit too much of that hero ball stuff. That you're mentioning sometimes works in the final two minutes. Well, it kind of bleeds over into the rest of his game a little bit too much for us. Uh, with Butler uh, – you know, he's getting to the free throw line. He's punishing you. 
uh, no matter what. Every single night he's going to give you that. And and so that's why we went Butler over George. Hayward, uh, you know, we were convinced. I mean, this is the highest he's ever been on our list. Uh, you know, certainly in terms of a guy who had a limited postseason resume until last year, I thought he played, you know, really well in the playoffs, uh, you know, through some adversity, obviously both for himself and his teammates, but he had some really impressive postseason showings. Uh, you know, he, he, that's a huge reason why he, he climbed up to our list and got into that conversation with these other elite wings. Um, I think he set up for success in Boston. I think that's certainly going to be a situation that will play to his strengths. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think we still need to see just a touch more because to us and, and the way we look at this, we do value playoff performance, consistency of winning, having teams that are built around you doing, you know, 50 plus win seasons kind of year after year after year. Uh, and, you know, this past season, both, you know, Chicago and Indiana you know, really had some tough situations around their main guys. Uh, but we're expecting, you know, big things from both those players in their new situations, whether it's Minnesota or Oklahoma City. Uh, and, and we still want to be a little bit more convinced uh, with Hayward that you know, his style of unselfishness that you've mentioned can translate to, you know, a 50 win season you know, year in and year out. Uh, and I think to me, frankly, I'm a little skeptical about this, this new Celtics team, not only because of Hayward, uh, but also because of Kyrie. Uh, you know, can these guys do it? Uh, I want them to prove it first. It's interesting. I have been skeptical about them, particularly my biggest thing is just their whole personality has gone, right? They used to just be a bore to play. You just knew they were going to be in on you and just, just you know, swiping and, and physically like, between Amir Johnson, Kelly Olynyk. uh, Jay Crowder, Avery Bradley, Marcus Smart, even Jonas Jerebko has got a little nasty to him, right? You just had this flood of guys who are going to be in on you and just bugging you all night, and they that's not who they are. But i got to be honest, in the last 48 hours, for some reason, I've kind of flipped. I've just – I think they might be awesome. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because, like, last year, you definitely knew who they were, and you knew it was going to be a very solid team. The question was ceiling. I think this year it's kind of the opposite, like – their ceiling is really high, like they, but I also think that their floor could be low. I mean, what I worry about with them is what do they look like when Kyrie is out for the 10 games a year that he pretty much always misses, right? I mean, if they don't have him, who's picking up the lead ball handling? Who's helping get uh, Hayward the ball? Is it Hayward himself? All of a sudden, that's a fairly big burden. Um, I, I think they're a little bit top-heavy roster-wise. I, mean, I think the good news for them is that they're in the Eastern Conference um, so even if they've got guys missing, you know, 10, 15 games, it's not going to be the end of the world. Like it might be in the West. It's not going to cost them, you know, a playoff spot. Like, you know, some of these teams have, have kind of been knocked out by, you know, short-term injuries in recent years in the West. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I can see the high ceiling, but I can also see a very low floor. All right. Um, how do you, so what else if I told you I just wouldn't have had DeMarcus listed? Yeah. So <laughs> this is where we get into the, like, we need to be fair to players, right? So with DeMarcus, every time you do the would you rather have DeMarcus or player X test, he fails. Like, would you rather have I'd rather Rudy have play, Gobert? I'd rather have player X every single time. Yeah. Who, who's, who's, yeah Rudy Go- who's, 90, yeah. who's 95? Taj Gibson, DeMarcus Cousins? Give me Taj Gibson. Yeah. And, and so from us, I think he was number 12 last year, and I think he dropped around, what, 23 or something like that uh, this past year. Uh, I mean, guys like Gasol. I mean, you just go right down the list of the all-around center, so you just trust more, you, you'd feel more comfortable with. Uh, you know, at some point, it's tricky. I mean, we do have to try to balance everything. I mean, this guy is putting up the best numbers at the center position since Shaq, and even though you can definitely question, does he make his teammates better, you can definitely question, do those numbers translate to winning? 
especially now that, and I think one main reason why we dropped him was we now saw it in two different places, right? Like we couldn't blame Sacramento for everything about Cousins. Once he goes to New Orleans and he's having the same emotional outburst, he's having the same suspension issues, he's having the same lineup fit questions. Uh, so I guess the, the place we settled on was if you did have them, not in a vacuum, but in like a very productive environment where I mean, maybe not the Warriors, but a team that has a lot of talent where he can fulfill and, and kind of you know, a very specific role and put his you know, talent to best use, we could see him being still a very, very awesome and a very, very productive player. Uh, but yes, I mean, we hear from a lot of people who say, you know, he shouldn't even be listed, sent a message. Uh, he doesn't get it. Uh, he, he performed so well by, you know, the advanced stats, you know, and the, in the per game stats that, you know, at some point we felt like we had to get him in there. So we weren't being unfair to him and we don't want to be unfair or try to single out any individual player. I mean, that's a big part of our list is we're, we're trying to accurately reflect uh, the entire league. Uh, but we heard from people who agree with you. Um, if I'm Marcus, Sol, I'm hunting you down and finding you, by the way. <laughs> that's fine. We'll take it. Uh, that'll be good for Clay. <laughs> All right, random weird um, player. There's two random weird ones that just when I read them that just jumped out to me, and I was like, "Yeah, I don't like this one." So my and I my first one is Eric Bledsoe at 38, but I don't know who I think Eric Bledsoe is. Eric Bledsoe is a real tough one because again, I, Phoenix to me is a team that is always kind of on my uh, my naughty list. You know, I feel like somehow. We, we always talk about Philadelphia, the process, how, you know, lottery reform, all these implications, but teams like Phoenix and Orlando uh, and even New Orleans and some of these other situations that are, you know, in my opinion, very detrimental to individual players and their development somehow just skate by in the national conversation and don't really get brought up. I mean, to, uh, to me, when you're healthy and you've had injury issues in past years and your team shuts you down for 20 games at the end of the season, just so they can tank, I mean, that, I don't hold that against you as a player. I hold that against the organization. And so I think there's a really compelling argument that we haven't seen everything that Bledsoe can do, not only because his organization is sort of not putting his best interest first, um, but also because he has had some injury issues in the past. I mean, he's a guy, I think if he had average talent, if he was moved to, you know, this mythical vacuum, uh, he would still be able to be an impact guy going downhill on offense. I think he, you know, he's getting there with his shot a little bit. Uh, just a dynamic player. And then defensively, I think if he was part of a really good scheme with guys behind him that he could trust, he could really make your life miserable as an on-ball defensive player. Uh, so, you know, we don't necessarily see him, like, as a top seven or eight point guard. I mean, we definitely see him as a cut below, uh, you know, the elite point guards at that position. Uh, but he's also one of these guys where we're constantly saying, like, man, if he could only go to this team or if he could only go to this team – uh, they'd be so much more intriguing. They'd be such a better threat to Golden State. Uh, you know, so maybe you could look at this rating from us uh, for Bledsoe as almost like uh, you know we're we're hoping that uh, the hostage gets freed. You know what I mean? S- same question on Ricky Rubio because I don't know how to rank him either. Yeah, so Rubio actually has a big time advocate in Rob Mahoney. So Rob is the guy who I do this list with. And there are a few players, Danilo Gallinari and Ricky Rubio, who Rob will just refuse to ever let be underrated. Like he is just going to guarantee that if anything, they're going to be properly rated or overrated. Uh, with with uh, Rubio, everybody knows the knock on him with the shooting and how that can kind of screw things up late in games. Um, 
what we see when we're looking through this process is that a lot of times non-shooters can really impact their overall team's performance. So I'm thinking of guys like, you know, Rondo, or if we want to go over to wings, maybe it's a kid Gilchrist or a Robertson where in situations like their weaknesses, they don't have any way to cover up for that non-shooting weakness. And so they may become a real drag on the offense. I think with Rubio, what you clearly have is an elite playmaker for others. You know, I mean, he, he is very creative night in, night out. He could do it. Uh, pick and roll targeting guys. Uh, he, you know, in a way he's a broken offensive player uh, because he doesn't have that shot himself because he doesn't trust it. And because he doesn't really have a lot of different methods for generating points. Uh, but he at least has kind of found a way to limp through his brokenness uh, and, and be a productive offensive player. What stood out to us last year was Minnesota's top 10 offensive rating, you know, and you look at that roster outside of towns, I don't see a ton of amazing offensive pieces. I think Wiggins is starting to get there. He's really starting to figure it out, uh, but he wasn't really there quite there yet last year. Uh, and you look at their other pieces, I mean, just a really forgettable cast of characters. I mean, I think they, they were really smart to go all in on a big summer because, you know, what they had just, you know, wasn't very impressive. So for Rubio to be able to be kind of the starting point guard in that situation uh, and carry them to that to that level was impressive to us. Uh, and then defensively, you know, all the, the metrics love him there. So that's sort of where he was on that list. I think some people view him more negatively. And I think there's a real tendency, a groupthink tendency to say, hey, look, if you can't shoot at the point guard position, you're worthless. And we heard that about Alfred Payton. We've heard that about Rubio in the past, too. And one thing we do try to do is give those guys credit for more than just their shooting ability or lack thereof. It. The, um, all right, this one's weird and it's like caught my eye of all silly things. And then I have one final one. Ben Golliver, thanks so much. If Nicholas Batum plays for the Warriors. He doesn't do what Andre Iguodala does better. Yeah, Iguodala is one of the trickiest guys to rate because. The vacuum test, he would really flunk the vacuum test because I think he wouldn't be nearly as engaged. His health limitations, his age limitations, uh, it would be very hard for him to hold up under big minutes, I think, at this stage of his career. Uh, but at the same time, the Warriors, they wouldn't trade him for basically anybody, right? I mean, in terms of being like your fifth or sixth best player, whatever you would. Yeah, Iguodala is just one of the trickiest guys to rate because he would definitely fail the vacuum test because of his age and health issues. Like They've got him set up perfectly to kind of maximize who he is as a player. If you throw him on a random team and you ask him to do more, I think he probably struggles to do that uh, or you know, at least struggles to maintain his efficiency. But with him, I feel like he's like the most untouchable, like fifth or sixth best player on a team around the league. Like we kept going back to like, would the Warriors trade Iguodala for player X or player Y? And, and we kept coming back and saying, no, uh, you know, one thing that jumped out to us is just the elite defensive ceiling. Like you mentioned Batum, is Batum going to be able to swipe LeBron? Is he going to have that basketball IQ late in these playoff games or a couple of years ago when uh, Iguodala was just making Kevin Durant like miserable in the Western Conference Finals late uh, in Oklahoma City's collapse, like in those high-pressure moments, uh, we thought Iguodala was just a, a much more effective player than Batum would be. But we love Batum, and we actually heard from people who said Batum was overrated, and I think what they're missing is you know, the secondary playmaking and how unique of a skill that is. I think when you look at guys who were like 15-5-5 five, and five last year, it was basically all like 
all NBA guys, and then Batum. He was like the one guy who wasn't sort of on that level who was still able to kind of produce like that statistically. It just shows how unique he is as an offensive player. He really helps Kemba Walker go in Charlotte. Uh, you know, it's a huge burden to be the only playmaker on your team, and uh, they weren't great last year. I do kind of think the, the Hornets are going to bounce back a little bit, uh, you know, this coming year. Uh, but Batum is a, a crucial cog for their offense, and then also helping to cover up for non-shooters. You know, he's kind of been a streaky guy. When he is on, he can be a very effective three-point shooter. But having somebody who can handle the ball and, and work with your bigs in a little two-man game can really help make up for, say, like Michael Kidd Gilchrist, uh, who's a non-shooter, or Cody Zeller, who a uh, very active player, but, you know, he would be ideal if he had three-point range. And, and right now he's just not there. But uh, you know, having a player like Batum who can handle uh, helps make up for some of those limitations with the team concept. Okay, so here's my guy I think you um, snubbed. You ready? Okay. I'll bet you I'm the only one Is who thinks, Ingr- thinks this. Uh, okay, go for it. So one of so I have two things. This is because I'm the radio voice of the Utah Jazz that I'm very curious about in the league this year. Um, one is the value of depth, and then two is, um, you know, there are 93 offensive and 93 defensive possessions, and so what's the what's the real value of defense? I think being third in the league offense is more important than being third in the league defense. But it's interesting, right, because it's really all about differential. So the one player that's not on this list who I have seen more game plans be impacted, I've seen uh, – all-star player absolutely wilt against. And I have seen a team absolutely try to do everything they can to get their all-star free of him defensively is Andre Robertson. And I would put him on the top top 100 because I think he is the best on-ball, impactful defensive player in the league. And I actually might put him in the 60s or 70s. Yeah, so I voted with my official vote this year. I put him on, I want to say, all defensive first team, maybe all defensive second team. Uh, I'm with you. I love him. We don't rank our snubs. We do 25 snubs, and some of them are just sort of like the high-profile names, like the Derrick Roses of the world, who they're not really close, but, you know, we mentioned them. Uh, Robertson was one of our last cuts. Um, I was a, a big fan of his. I think what we came back to was, okay, you know, how damaging is he to your offense? And then in playoff situations, you know, if you're playing against the best teams, can they exploit him to the to the point where, like, his lack of shooting or just his one-dimensionalist, like, can he be exploited to the point where uh, either they have to take him off the court or it compromises his, um, you know, his defensive impact? Yeah, it was a tough cut. I mean, a lot of these cuts, to be honest, this year were not that hard. I felt like we had a harder time filling out like the 85 to 100 range than we maybe we've had in previous years. And there weren't a ton uh, that got, you know, us really sweating in terms of the cuts. But I'm with you. Um, he's right there. And it, it just kind of you could probably hear the pain in my voice a little bit. The fact that he wasn't on there. We probably should have made a room for him. I mean, what he did against Harden is phenomenal. Uh, and well-documented and consistency-wise, understanding his role, minutes. Um, you know, I love the phrase, like, you know, the, the best ability is availability. Like, he definitely fills that. I mean, you know what you're going to get from him night in, night out. Uh, so I, I think his praises, too. I'm with you. Ben Golliver, great work. Tip of the hat to Rob Mahoney. Um, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for the conversation, man, and uh, good luck this season. Thanks.
Hi, you've reached the High Fashion Hotline. Hi, my family's going to a tailgate, and I want our style to stand out from the crowd. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's got all the latest fall styles. Plus, during Old Navy's colossal sale, you'll save up to 50% off store-wide. Did you say up to 50% off? I did, so don't sit on the sidelines. Old Navy has the perfect pants from 19 bucks, stylish dresses from 15 bucks, and comfy tees for the family from just 6 bucks. right now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. We're cheering for Old Navy. High Fashion, Old Navy. Valid 10-2 to 10-10. Select styles only.